And it's, I like to say that it's not lost, it just went to sleep. It's yeah. just waiting for us to find it and to breathe life back into it. Welcome to the 249th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Ever had one of those conversations that basically flips on its head your view of what you thought you knew about a certain subject? As someone who has reported on agriculture for more than three decades, I thought I had a pretty good idea of what farming was all about. It turns out I, like many white people, have been heavily influenced by European views of what constitutes food production. Neat, checkerboard squares of domesticated annual crops cultivated on land that bears little resemblance to the prairie, woods, and other natural habitats that were removed to make way for quote-unquote real agriculture. But after spending an afternoon with Ella Robertson and Eric Wana, I realized that farming and food production can take many surprising forms. And they help me see that many of the ecological principles that underlie today's sustainable farming systems are not recent inventions. Their Dakota ancestors, as well as traditional peoples of other American tribes, have plenty to teach us all about regenerative food production. Ella and Eric are members of the Siston Wapton Oyate and live near Peaver in northeastern South Dakota. During the past few years, they've been working to reclaim their people's food-producing heritage. They've been raising traditional fruits, vegetables, and other crops, and are rediscovering the role gathering and preserving food from the surrounding countryside can play in providing a healthy form of sustenance. They've gleaned knowledge from a variety of sources, including older relatives, books, the internet, and just as importantly, trial and error. They're committed to learning as much as they can, putting it into practice, and passing that knowledge on to future generations. I was in South Dakota interviewing Ella and Eric as part of the West Central Minnesota We Are Water initiative which is intended as a space for people of all ages and experiences to connect and learn through our shared connection to water. What struck me during our conversation was how critical the health of the land is when the food production methods being used are so closely tied to natural ecosystems. Eric and Ella described to me how rediscovering their ancestors' food production legacy is helping them also reclaim who they are as Native Americans. And like any farmer, they are reminded every day that no matter what food they are raising or gathering, or what methods they're using, it all starts and ends with one important element. As Ella says, water is at the center of everything we do. Hello, my name is Ella Robertson. I'm a member of the Sistin Wapton Oyate. Uh, hello, I'm Eric Wana, member of the Sistin Wapton Oyate as well. Um, so we are in the Big Coulee area of Peaver, South Dakota. We have a traditional garden where we grow um, heirloom seeds, uh, one of our um, most important crop to us is our Wamnayaza, which is a traditional corn that we received from a tribal member over in the Granite Falls area from Upper Sioux community. Um, and then also we have our high tunnel, which Eric received through a grant from NRCS equip program. Um, so it's kind of a combination of the two and then we added some tree fabric because we're trying to juggle um, having a garden and working full-time so we don't get to spend all day in the garden where traditionally our people that's their job getting yeah. food gardening from day to day yeah so definitely an emphasis on heirloom uh, traditional types of foods for instance um, 
older varieties of tomatoes, um, if at all possible, traditional varieties of what we have here. For instance, ground plums or ground cherries. Uh, something new we added to our garden this year. Mm -hmm. um, similar to a tomatilla. Uh, we have a variety of different squashes we grow. Um, you can see the apple trees behind us here. Through the years, I have been attempting grafting, trying to make an everything tree. You know, taking different <laughs> clippings of trees I've had or found across uh, the Sistan Wapton Reservation anyways, and hoping to add it to it. So um, we're trying to have an orchard. Yeah. yeah. So we have, um, we have these apple trees, we have pear, cherry, um, we planted um, two peach trees, one took, and then this was actually our first year we hand pollinated our pear tree. And so we actually had pears. And so we were pretty excited about that. We found another um, pear tree down a couple coolies over. So we got gra gathered some blossoms and we pollinated our tree here, which didn't have a companion tree and it, it took. So we are pretty excited about that. That was our first year because I've had that tree for like 14 years and it's never produced any pears. Yeah. So we do have bees for pollination. Um, something we've been working on for probably eight, maybe three years, something like that. Well, it's been longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We started when I worked in the planning department over at System Wapunoyate. Um, we went out to Wisconsin to get our first start um, in honeybees for the tribe. Um, I had no experience, Eric had, had some experience, um, and so I think with all things, we just kind of dive right in. If yeah. we feel like we're interested in it, we want to do it, then we just dive right in. Yeah, absolutely, for and sure. So kind of getting back, or we wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the, of like our people here, and Eric's family has, you know, some generations back, they had a farm with cattle and um yeah we've so turn of the century 1900s type of deal farming was sort of given us to us as a means of supporting ourselves so some families took to it others didn't um fortunately i was come from a family that did do well in it and it was a number of family your family yeah it was a number of families so it stayed in our family and another quite a few other families up until the 80s I would say prior to me would be the last generation where we were actually still into farming and ranching. I'm not sure where the crossover went, where the families just sort of gave up. And so I'm a generation away from farming now. Um, slowly over the years with Ella, we've been putting our foot back into it and hoping to get back to that area. Or... And my experience is different. Uh, my family didn't, we didn't, um, retain our original allotment of land. Uh, we didn't farm. Um, we did do some gardening, you know, as a child I remember gardening, but it was a hardship because we didn't have running water, so we would have to haul water. So I didn't have that. Um, like Eric did, I didn't have that, that same experience. Um, I had a limited amount of experience, you know, gardening growing up. It wasn't until probably the last, what, five or seven years where like we became really serious about it. 
I mean, it wasn't just like we're going to go put some plants in the ground and forget about them and they're all up in weeds and you're like, hey, I got some tomatoes around here somewhere because that has happened. You know, this time yeah. we, were, yep. we were really committed to it. And, and uh, so then we are looking at using straw to keep the weeds from growing because it is juggling those schedules and trying to be how can you be committed <laughs> but not where it's taking so much hours and backbreaking work and so that's where we incorporated tree fabric we wanted to make sure that we had our own foods so i learned how to can and i'm still learning how to can and it's um i'm learning to do it on my own and eric has some insight because his kushi she canned it's just getting back to those old ways and i think too now with the virus more people are canning more people have been gardens you know april came around and people were like ella can we start planting stuff yet and we're like no it's too early you yeah. know but i think with the pandemic it's really changed people's mind about the convenience of food because we were on lockdown and people weren't um able to travel around and it's kind of ironic because we had an elderly lady and her name was Dorothy Gill and she used to say that like 80s 90s I would always remember her when we would have our general council meeting she would say what are our young people going to do what are you teaching your children how are they going to survive you know and at that time because things were so convenient if you needed something you go to the store and you buy it Yep. And it's still like that. You know, you can order stuff online now and it comes to your door. But I think it's just having that sense of identity. As Dakota people, we were so self-sufficient. We had such a connection with the land. You know, we never depleted our resources. We would m migrate for certain things that we knew were in season. We never stayed in one place for too long because you would use up those resources. So another reason for all this coming about was food culture. So we have a number of hunters and fishermen and we have that seasonal seasonal migration for the deers. So we have fishing season, spearing seasons coming through. So we all we all take part in it as far as the tribal peoples. But how we preserve that food is something that we're mm -hmm. trying to reintroduce or bring back, you know, as far as when spearing comes around. So my Kushi told stories years ago of when they would come out of the hills, so they grew up in the Long Hollow area, which would be 20 miles north of here possibly. So her and her parents would load up their cart. They would all travel down to a creek that we all use locally here called Jim's Creek. They would spear their fish as they were spearing their fish. They would clean them out, prepare them and dry them. So that is something that is absolutely lost around here. Um, I do remember my Cushy preparing her fish, drying her fish. Same with deer meat and the ducks. You know, learning how to cut your meat, learning how to dry your meat, learning how to prepare your ducks, how to keep them for use for later on throughout the winter. Mm -hmm. um, something that I and Ella have been doing, or bringing back over the years. But for instance, this year, one of the new things we've done was smoking fish. So we've took carp, um, tried northern, tried it on walleyes. I pickled northern. This yeah, year. we yeah our first year pickling northern again. And it's I like to say that it's not lost; it just went to sleep. It's yeah. just waiting for us to find it and to breathe life back into it. Because once we moved here from Minnesota, we tapped trees. We harvested wild rice. 
those things we don't do anymore. Mm -hmm. And talking with the elders, none of them remember. They, they knew stories about it, but they themselves never did it. So last year was the first year that we tapped trees. <laughs> Eric was <laughs> watching a video on YouTube and we're across this, the road over here at my aunt's because she has deals and like, well, how far in are we going? You know, and so that's how we showed ourselves was YouTube, but it's, it's, it doesn't matter where we're learning it from. It's that we are trying. Are, yeah, we're we're, we're trying. going out and doing it. Yep. And not only for ourselves, but we're videoing it. We're putting it on Facebook, putting it on YouTube, um, showing other people. So other people are actually doing it now. You mm -hmm. know, and yep. we shared our taps. That's the exciting part about reintroducing, you mm -hmm. know, lost knowledge. Well, forgotten knowledge. I don't know. Yeah. You have a different term for it. But yeah, so I guess that's the most exciting part is... Yeah. relearning and teaching we had a um a group that came out there um it's the alcohols anonymous group they had come out this past spring and this was like shortly after covid had hit and we're social distancing so we're trying to be really careful and and uh, they wanted to see um the taps that we had and um how we were catching it and they were so surprised because it just looks like clear water you know there's a little bit of a flavor but not much um, so we went extra steps this year and we were consistent with it, cooking it. And because we were home due to COVID, then it, yep. and we were able to do our food, our food stuff at the same time. And you know, so we cooked it down, we made syrup and then we cooked it further down, made candy. And then I went the next step and made sugar out of it so then i stored all of that because we're like you know we read about it you know how they used it in the different ways and i can't even imagine because here i am with an electric stove and it's taking eight hours you know for a big canning pot to cook all the way down to eight ounces of syrup and then even further down you know if you're going to make the candy or the sugar i'm like how the heck did they do it in those um those wooden jobs, you yeah, know, yeah. it's, it's a lot of work. And I, and I always tell people that nothing that our people did was easy. It's hard work no matter what. And so it keeps us in good shape. Mm -hmm. And, and we teach, we teach our kids, everything that we do, our kids participate in everything that we do. Um, because that's the next generation. We want them to learn, um, so that they know and it's up to them when they become adults, if they're going to pursue that, if they're going to carry that on. But we planted that seed with them and yeah. that they know. So I look at it as, so both Isla and I are into history, reading, finding knowledge, getting books, accumulating books, you know, of two, three hundred years ago. So when we're doing these things and we're documenting them, we're writing them down, making notes and using social media, it's always in the back of my head is what I'm doing right now, revitalizing our food ways. Yeah, our food ways is what the people 200 years from now are going to be reading about us. Because mm -hmm. honestly, our generation, the next generation, and hopefully the one after are the last of us, are the last of our peoples. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, our population is getting big, but as far as, so one big thing around here is blood quantum and being able to enroll yourself or be part of a tribe i don't know that's an issue coming up so two three hundred years from now people are going to be reading about what we're doing mm -hmm. and the knowledge we're passing on 
and looking at the differences as the time frame goes goes forward. So I think the start of like our interest in um, what we're doing with our foodways started with um, the Indigenous Farming Conference and our food, our very first food sovereignty conference, and learning about all the different ways that tribes grew food, and. So when they asked me to come and talk about what I was doing, because I was also a farmer, I'm like, oh, you know, you don't think of yourself as a farmer because we're just thinking of ourselves as we're growing food to eat, yeah. you know. So the traditional sense of what is farming, we look at a European farm or a settler's farm and farming when it comes to mind as the average citizen or average person in the United States is a squared blocked out piece of land with uh, 40 acres of bean, 40 acres of corn, uh, 40 acres of wheat. So on the traditional side of farming, before we realize that what we are doing is actually farming is we gathered a lot of information, we researched uh, what was farming, what was the traditional sense or Native American sense of farming. Something that I came across was, in fact, we had agriculture and it went back hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. We cropped, we grew orchards, we had, you know, apple trees. Well, so apples aren't original to the Americas, but when they did come in, we, you know, we produced apples. Mm -hmm. uh, we had orchards. Crab we, apples yeah, were... crab apples. What? I can't remember what, what tribe that was down south. Remember, was it apricot or pear oh, or a peach so, orchard and remember Kit Carson came in and he burned down their orchard and it, so it was always when, when they were fighting with the with the Native Americans of the United States it was about attacking their food source yeah and so what uh, what we're trying to do is regain that knowledge and that strength in our foods yeah. because our foods meant so much to us mm -hmm. you know the the down south they have different types of corns you know, and even further down south, um, remember that book, Native Roots? Native Roots. It talks about all the different varieties, tens of thousands of varieties of potatoes that they grew mm -hmm. in, in the different climates. So that is such an exciting idea or thought to have is here we are, Dakotas, living on the Sistinwapton Reservation, thinking that we were um, hunter-gatherers. In which case, <laughs> that's not true. So the idea of food, the first thing when we were being pushed off our lands is our food sources, how we grew, how we planted, how we kept ourselves sustained was taken from us. So we didn't realize that indeed we had agriculture. We had a sense of farming. We had a sense of growing our own food. Uh, and producing it on mm -hmm. large scale. So we didn't typically, you know, go and plant an entire lake. We took from, oddball, you know, different lakes across the, across the lands. We had orchards set up in different spots throughout our lands. We had fields set up with specific people watching the fields throughout our lands. So yeah, we were travelers. We did move around season to season, but as we moved around, we had different agricultural doings going on here and there, mm -hmm. I would have to say. And it is exciting to revitalize that, to find that information that, you know, we thought we didn't have. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of this, as 
from when we started eight years ago has just been a learning, a huge learning curve for us. Um, especially finding out that, yeah, we're not just the hunter-gatherers <laughs> we're portrayed as in, you know, some of the stories we hear about the Dakotas and Lakotas and all of that. But even our own people don't know that. Yeah. Because we moved um, from Minnesota to here, it wasn't until I was reading um, that book, What This All Means, and it talks about an excavation of a village, I believe it was in Mendota Heights, but it was in Minnesota somewhere, but it, it, that was where they found remnants of a garden area. And even our um, structures, our housing was different. We didn't live in teepees. We lived in bark houses and mm -hmm. they were semi-permanent. Semi Some of them were permanent camps. Yeah, we did have permanent settlements. And so it was just different. It, it was, once you start to, um, like you opening up a door, pretty soon it's just blown open, you know, by all this amazing information. And it kind of just blows out of the water your whole idea of who you are. Yeah. Because pretty soon we're not plains people where we grew up thinking we're plains people and we wear a certain type of moccasin. And it's like, oh, no, you don't, your people didn't wear that moccasin. Mm -hmm. You wore a pucker toe, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you, and you had floral designs and you're just woodland. And so that's another thing <laughs> our people have is understanding or realizing we are not who we thought we were. <laughs> you know, our thinking of who we are the past century. So all of that was taken from us. Like literally, we, mm -hmm. turn of the century, everything we did had to be authorized by the government. Mm -hmm. Our thinking, our, our way of learning, our church. Say for instance, we wanted to go cut wood from the coulee across to heat our house. We had to have permission for that. Yep. We wanted and it to had go... to be a crooked tree designated by the superintendent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we wanted to go visit relatives on a different reservation. We had to have permission for that. You got a special pass and yep. you, you left on a certain day and you returned on a certain day. So that train of thought followed over into the next generation. We're three generations from that now. And when I was growing up, all I thought was what was in front of me in the history books, that I chased buffaloes and lived in teepees, in which case that's not true. You know, it's, I started reading, gathering, finding information as soon as I could, you know. So prior to the internet, I spent a lot of time in the library reading every book I can get my hand on. And once we did get the internet, oh my God, <laughs> it just opened up a whole new world to me and it helped me find who I was who my people was, what we did previous to all the hardships we endured over the past 150 years. And I think a lot of it is just changing our, our um, we have to be more open-minded open yeah. because yeah. the whole idea and concept of who we thought we were, now it's different. And sometimes our people don't want to accept some of that mm -hmm. because for so long we've been taught a certain thing. Um, and you know, right now it's popular to talk about colonization, you know, but, um, but it's true. There's no getting around it. Yeah. There's just no getting around it because, uh, you, you know, there was a structured way that we had to live, that we were educated and it was um, kill the Indian, save the man. And it's like we're the product of that. And yeah. now we're in, in you know, we re received 
Indian Religious Freedom, 1978 or 9. And, you know, until that point, you know, we couldn't even practice our religion. And you think about our foods, we had ceremonies, we had songs, mm -hmm. we had special prayers that we did for each of those things. And that has gone to sleep. And so we're trying to wake it up. Yeah. You know, yeah. to pray about that. Because to me, that strengthens our connection with Mother Earth when we're harvesting those things to pray and to sing those songs that are appropriate for that mm -hmm. because we're, we're thankful and we're grateful for what she provides for us, you know, and even down to just our teas, all of it has, has healing properties in it. You know, uh, there's, um, was a student down to, um, I think it was Duck Valley, but it was down to um, Nevada that she had did a research project on choke cherries and that's one of our traditional foods and when we process it we pick it fresh we grind it with the seeds and all and so i remember someone saying well how come you're eating the seeds do you know the seeds have arsenic in them those are poisonous you know you guys should should be dead you're you're eating that <laughs> that stuff yeah. you know and so anyway this this young lady had did this research project and she had taken those choke cherries and put them with um some cancer cells and those choke cherries killed those cancer cells mm -hmm. and so that's why i truly believe that all of our foods they have those healing properties and there's a reason why we prepare our foods the way that we did you know, even though it may be more convenient to just get rid of all of the seeds, that's not how we did it. We, we smashed them and we ate them. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, now that we have a better understanding of that, then that's what we share with people. That's what we share with our, with our children because we, there's always a reason and a purpose for everything that we did. Mm -hmm. And it's just knowing what that is, understanding what that is. Yep. So the traditional form of ranching, traditional form of farming. We're farmers. We don't have 40 acres that we're growing on. We don't have 200 acres that we're planning on. But with that being said, we have what we have here. A lot of the food that we gather is all over our reservation. We harvest from a thousand acres. We harvest from 2000 acres, you know, throughout the seasons, you know, using different portions of the land to find our plums, to find our teepsinas, to find our teas, to find our, I don't know, fruits, mushrooms. mushrooms, vegetables, everything. We're farmers. Not in the traditional sense of what it is, to, you know, the European sense, but we're farming. We're, we're actually doing it. Climate change has had a definite impact on us with uh, not only gathering our natural foods, um, but also in, in the bigger picture as far as rainfall and how we're dealing with that in, as individuals, but collectively as well. Um, ourselves, you know, we're utilizing our tree fabric because it helps us to retain water. Um, so that's one, one move that we've made. Um, we did have a um, soaker hose system in there. And this past year, we were hoping to put it in place was a water catchment system. Um, to utilize our natural uh, rainfall instead of utilizing um, water from the pump. Ultimately, we want to be self-sustaining. 
You know, we have a wind tower. We haven't implemented it yet to supplement our energy. And that's kind of what the, the gardening and the harvesting is. How much can we do for ourselves and not rely on the grocery store? As far as what we do with the water and how we use the water, um, I think it begins with our climate and how climate change is affecting what we're doing. So through the 80s, we were in a major drought area. A lot of the Katoll potholes on top of the hill, some of our biggest lakes around here were basically reed lakes. Through the 90s, early 90s, we had a series of extremely wet years, which filled up all of our lakes. For instance, one of them on top of the hill would be Drywood Lake. Perfect example of it. When I was a child, it was a duck mecca, of course, but we were able to nearly walk across the lake. It was just a giant reed lake. Through the early 90s, as we had those wet years, the lake is turned into a lake again. It, it completely filled up. With that being said, we live in a very unique area of South Dakota. Uh, we live in the Coteau areas. And as far as where we live right now, microclimate mm -hmm. is a big part of this whole Coteau area. So you can go 10 miles to the east, 10 miles to the west, and you're gonna have a whole different climate. It's um, gonna be arid and dry. Arid and dry, They'll yeah. be having severe drought on top of the hill and down here it's green yeah and it's lush the winters that we have again are microclimatized we could be 100 percent full-on blizzard we could have 10 feet of snow along the coteaux the bottom side of the coteaux you go on top of the coteaux and there's sunshine and it's yeah, clear <laughs> sunshine and it's clear the snow hardly any of it at all um one thing I have noticed is, so I'm an outdoorsman and I spent a lot of time running around the hills and, and, and whatnot, taking people to hunt. But uh, each one of the different coolies you see on the Coteau Hills area, starting from way down in the Millbank all the way up into the Veblen area at the peak of our hills is, each one of them coolies has natural spring areas. And one thing I've noticed is they're drying up. As far as how they're fed, I'm not positive. I think. Um, Majority of, majority of it comes from the potholes on top of the hills, you know, seeping in the ground and coming out as fresh spring water. But once again, um, farmers taking advantage of it. If you go on top of the hills and you look at each one of these coolies that, that go along our hills area, they're all tapped. They all got, they all have um, wells on them. So those wells are feeding the cattle that the, the ranchers are using. And in return, they're drying up the creeks, like really drying up the creeks. And that's how climate change is impacting us because mm -hmm. then the farmers are taking from the land and then it's impacting everyone else. Yeah, it, it's, so yeah, they're getting their use out of the water, but in return, everybody on the bottom side of the hills, I mean, we're talking microclimate. So it's in affecting small portions as we go along the hills. Mm -hmm. And like I said, our creeks are drying up the, a lot of the water that we have below the hill, it doesn't exist no more. And it all goes back to the turn of the century, how they use the land, the drain tiling, which is the most major issue we have right now, is as soon as any water hits our land, it's pushed away, pushed into the creeks and leaves our area. We don't retain it anymore. There's no way to keep the water that we have 
coming down that's being replenished every year here it goes into the fields goes into the ditches and is diverted out into the creeks and we lose all of that land so they say 15 years from now we're going to be a number of degrees warmer due to climate change what's happening right now how is that going to affect us 20 years from now 30 years from now i mean we're seeing it right now in the 20 what 2020 so 2030 2040 we're going to be we're going to be dry we're going to be arid we're going to be back to the dust bowl area and in our in our culture we believe that when the snow comes that it's a blanket on mother earth to allow her to heal herself so that she cleanses herself so that and kills all of the sickness and so when we have less of a winter and it's not as cold then sickness comes and so that's one thing that we're concerned about because we um, there's a reason for each of our seasons mm -hmm. that it provides something for our people that we believe in and how is that going to impact us when we don't have a say yeah. about in about how things are done throughout the rest of the world mm -hmm. there is not a spring in the area not a lake in the area that isn't contaminated in some way shape or form um, actually, in our area this past year, we experienced a number of algae blooms, which is unheard of. We, mm -hmm. I mean, it didn't happen. And Just, so that's due to climate yeah. change. So for, we have a lake right along the roadside, maybe a mile from here, and that lake experienced an algae bloom. First time ever. And it completely killed off the fish population. Their aerators, yeah. they didn't work or they didn't turn them on. And so that's where... All of us locally, we go there, we fish with the kids, and pretty soon, yeah. all the fish were floating. Yeah, a um, couple of the big lakes up on top of our hill. I mean, they were actually deep lakes. Same thing, algae bloom, complete fish kill off. That is something new to us. That has to go back to climate change, I'm sure of it. Um, Especially with when the waters get warmer, that's mm -hmm. when, when they experience the algae bloom. Yeah, so association with climate change, our growing zone has changed as well. So where we used to be in growing zone six, we're now considered five for, for sure. Our winters have been extended out. Our spring has been extended out. I mean, the seasons are coming like, I would say month difference from when we were growing up. There's definitely mm -hmm. a difference in when winter's coming, when summer's coming, how long spring lasts, how long fall lasts. So we experienced maybe a month of spring, which is really odd for us. I mean, we usually get spring mid-March, something like that. We didn't get it until into, way into April. Well, that goes along with your post on Facebook about Indian time. Oh, yeah. Because then it was all about um, how, you, how your time was, was determined by the change in the seasons. Mm -hmm. And so even though the calendar might say, you know, March 16th, mm -hmm. it's what is the environment doing at that time? And yeah. that's how we, when we go to tap trees, it's not... You know, we kind of watch the calendar, but you watch other things that are happening in nature. And that's how you know when things are going to happen, when it's a certain time to harvest. Yeah, yeah. Definitely goes along with food sustainability or food culture. I yeah. mean, just being able to read the signs, being able to know when things are coming in. You know what I mean? So, for instance, there's one crop or one natural plant that we pick every year, Teepsina. That has been coming weeks early 
for the past few years now mm -hmm. where normally we would see it coming into season say beginning of july we actually started picking teeps in uh beginning of june which mm -hmm. is really odd for us our berries um a lot of the fruit trees are coming in a lot earlier than they used to um for instance plums mm -hmm. they're almost gone already where we used to have them way into september beginning of october we'd still be able to harvest them they're pretty much done already mm -hmm. um what other plants have we noticed that we're just oh, out no, of season just this, coming yeah this was the first year we did morales though but yeah. that was kind of exciting <laughs> yeah 2020 is just been a whole something else altogether. <laughs> Good and bad. <laughs> so how what we're doing ties into We Are Water is that water is the center of everything that we do. It feeds our wamnayaza, it feeds our heirloom tomatoes, it feeds the lead plant that we pick for tea. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing that we probably didn't really talk about was our harvesting, you know, because not only do we hunt and we fish, we harvest those not the the game but we also gather our foods and our plants and so it's really important that we are careful about where we harvest and so when there's a concern about water about our resources being depleted then it's it's scary for us it's a concern for us because you know what we do all centers around, around water, water. yeah so the koto areas that we live in is known as the prairie pothole region of the mid united states um water for this area is natural my grandpa told me stories of when he was young when they first got moved onto this reservation the Siston wapton reservation they were able to travel from veblen south dakota all the way into Siston, all the way down to big stone through the waterways that were here previous to the oncoming of the settlers um, not too long ago, I wrote a number of papers on drain tiling and the impact it had on our area. So drain tiling has been going on here since the 1880s. Immediately the impacts were seen amongst our people because by the turn of the century, those waterways were gone, totally gone away from us. A lot of the prairie potholes on top of the Coteau areas that originally held water are drained completely drained a lot of the lakes even that we had were drain tiled out to the point where they wouldn't flood no more seasonal flooding you know the refilling of the potholes it, it was it just wouldn't happen so water is life water is a um, something from nature that we're not going to be able to get back once it's gone we do have a number of aquifers in our area Mm -hmm. Those are bedrock aquifers. We have one of the largest aquifers in northeastern South Dakota, just north of us here, in which case it is a bedrock aquifer. Maybe within the past 10 to 15 years, a number of giant ranches have sprung up in the area. A caffle. Yeah. A caffle in, in the Veblen area. And so that was a big concern for a number of our tribal members is um, what is the tribe going to do? You know, because as, as um, individual citizens, there's not a whole lot that you can do, you know. And, and so, like, his district, where he's from, um, the Chaipa and Beblin district, um, because they're centered right near that big kaffel, um, they were talking about what can we do as a tribe to reserve some of that water. 
so that it can't be depleted completely. Um, and I'm, I'm from Bakuli here, um, and we're uh, south, probably the most southernmost district. Yeah. Um, there's not as much concern because we're not facing it. It's not in our backyard. Um, so even though we reside on the same reservation w within the districts, the concerns are different, you know. Mm -hmm. But I do share the concern with Eric um, because water is non-renewable. Once it's gone, once it's depleted, then that's it, you know, or once it's contaminated. Once even. it's contaminated, it all ties together. In our area, farming and ranching are the biggest industries. We have some of the wealthiest farmers on this side of the river one, mm -hmm. for instance, living in the Bikuli area, another living in the Veblen area. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as what they're putting on our land, what they're spraying on our lands, none of that is controlled through the tribe. And a majority of the lands they use for their farms is tribal, tribal properties, mm -hmm. leased and whatnot. And, you know, and they're almost not regulated at all, mm -hmm. uh, aside from signing a lease, which is mm -hmm. basically pennies on a dollar, comparably. Mm -hmm. So yeah, contamination, drain tiling, how are we replenishing these aquifers? That's all in question. And I think a part of it is just bringing, you know, because sometimes it's hard, it's those hard subjects to, you know, as soon as they hear something about, you know, we need to protest or, you know, people <laughs> shut off. Yeah. They, they, they don't want to hear about it. When it's something negative, then they're going to shut off and, and they don't want to listen. But when you tie it into the foods and something that they can relate to, you know, that our medicines, our foods, that those are being impacted, then our people will take the time to listen. And, you know, to us, it's so very important. It's really important. And because we even have a, a water ceremony, you know, that's how important it was to our people. You know, that our, our people, our bodies were made of the four elements. And that's what we believe. Fire, water, air, and earth. earth. So <laughs> where we live at, Sistanwapton Dakota Nation is an extremely unique area in America. What we have right now, we have the Big Stone Lake and Lake Travers Reservation. So from the Big Stone Lake, you can literally take that waterway through Minnesota to Minneapolis, all the way down into New Orleans. On the other side, Lake Travers, one of the few rivers in North America that actually flows north. So you can get on the Lake Travers, follow the Red River all the way up to Lake Winnipeg, out into Hudson, into the ocean. So what happens right now, the way we use our waters, uh, what goes into our ground, what goes down into our aquifers, what trickles into our streams affects all of America, not just what's happening right here. Mm -hmm. There, if you back out, back out, back out, look at all of America, what's happening right here in our little small piece of the world is affecting our entire nation. There is a bigger picture here. It, it, it's nationwide. It's not just what we're doing. It's, it's everything. Yeah. And I think as Native Americans, as a Dakota family, we look at things holistically. Mm -hmm. And because of that connection with Mother Earth, that we're conscious of what happens, you know, because we know that if, you know, our water is poisoned or, or the land is, um, has too much chemical on it, 
that some of our medicines aren't going to grow, some of our foods aren't going to grow, um, we're not going to be able to harvest because, um, you know, it's been poisoned and it's not going to be good for us to take that in. Um, and because we utilize our entire reservation for collecting, it's, you know, we have to be conscious of what we're doing, where we're doing it, and, you know, what people are doing on the land. And so it's a bigger picture here in this small area that it's, you know, within our reservation. But then, you know, because we have a relatives on other reservations, you know, we have a concern for them. Those are our relatives. You know, as, as a Native Americans, we, we understand, we can empathize with those that are having issues with water, with, with land, with chemical use, you know, because that could be us. You know, that it just could easily be us. And if we don't collectively have a concern for it, then nothing is going to improve, nothing is going to get better. As I mentioned earlier, Ella Robertson and Eric Wana were interviewed as part of the We Are Water initiative, which documented the stories of several farmers in the upper reaches of the Minnesota River watershed who are using innovative production methods to not only protect our water, but to make their land more resilient in the face of challenges such as climate change. The webinar series that resulted is a partnership involving the University of Minnesota Morris Office of Sustainability, the Stevens Soil and Water Conservation District, and Clean Up the River Environment in cooperation with the Land Stewardship Project and with support from the Southwest Regional Sustainable Development Partnership. For more on the We Are Water initiative, see landstewardshipproject.org and go to the podcast page for episode number 249. There, you'll find a link to the Sharing Stories webpage. That webpage includes links to webinar discussions involving Robertson and Wana, as well as other farmers who were interviewed for this series. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give ear to the ground or ratings on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendell, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSB. Thanks for listening.